Hello everyone, good afternoon. Welcome to our weekly broadcast, a little late today. But we're here. We have seized the moment. The Buddha said, don't let the moment pass you by. Kano wo ma upachaka. Here we are in this moment of time. We're 13 minutes, 12 minutes late today. But those minutes are gone. Those moments are gone. What we have is the moment right now. That's a very special moment. This moment in time has great significance. First of all, one important quality of this moment is that we are all born human beings. Our life as a human being is just a moment in time. But at this moment, we are humans. It's a very special thing because if we had been born animals, we had been born in hell. Even if we had born as angels, it might be difficult for us to appreciate the Buddha's teaching because of how distracted we would be by heaven but human beings are in a good position to appreciate and uh, practice the Buddha's teaching second quality of this moment is that it's a moment in which the Buddha's teaching exists in the world. The Buddhas don't just aren't just born every day. It took the Buddha four uncountable periods of time and a hundred thousand eons beyond that. So an uncountable period of time is much bigger than an eon. In fact, it's so big that you can't even count how, how big that time is, how long that time is. Four of those. You count how many of them, apparently. At the time, amount of time itself can't be counted. And here we are, 2,500 years, just a blip in time. 2,500 years after the Buddha passed away, and not so long in the future there will be no Buddhism left. But here we are somewhere in the middle, finding that the Buddha's teaching is still available, still to be found in the world. The people who teach and practice it are still to be found. third quality of this moment 
was that in this moment we are still alive, we are still healthy. Our ears are good enough so that we can hear the teaching. Our minds are good enough so that we can understand the words. You think about how hard it is to live in this world. We have survived this far. We didn't die when we were young. We didn't die or get sick. Our brains still work. This morning, uh, we had a ceremony. Yesterday, we had an ordination of a novice. And this is someone who took the opportunity. He's 83 years old, and he ordained as a novice. Well, mostly, a novice is ordained when they're 12, 14, 16, maybe. When you're 20 years old, then you can ordain as a full monk. But he's 83 years old, and he's ordained as a novice. He's living downstairs from me. And his mind is good. His brain is good. So he took the opportunity. But his son, why he took the opportunity is because his son committed suicide 100 days ago. And so in commemoration of his 100 days after dying, after killing himself, he's ordained. So there you go. Some people die when they're in their prime, never having found a refuge, other people have the great opportunity and take the opportunity. Who cares if I'm 83 years old? I'm going to come and ordain as a novice. And it's an example for anyone who want, wants to know. You can come here and ordain as a novice just for a short time. We, next, uh, in a week or two, we have another monk, person who ordain, who wants to ordain as a monk for a short time. So I can see about see if there's anybody from Canada who wants to do that. <clears throat> Taking advantage of the opportunity he has. It's a great opportunity. The fourth quality of this moment is that we have right view, meaning we're someone we're people who want to listen to and practice the Buddha's teaching. We appreciate the Buddha's teaching. We love the Buddha's teaching. You can say we desire it. The Buddha said, Dhamma kamo bhavang hoti. Someone who is in love with the Dhamma is a, cult, a developed person, a cultivated individual, a high class individual. Bhava. Bhavang means. Uh, they are they, they they're a person of substance so you think of all of the things we might be doing today today we had 60 70 people outside come to uh, support his ordination and listen to listen to me talk and give food to the monks they could have been doing anything. We just came back driving and saw that on the road, all these people, so much traffic today. 
uh, here in in Ontario, and we're near Niagara Falls, and they're all going that way. And I thought, so where are they going? And the head monk said, uh, "What did he? How did he put it? Uh, going to play, going to play at Niagara Falls." But what he meant was gamble. I said, "Oh, gamble! Oh, yes, they're going to gamble at Niagara Falls. I guess there's casinos." So that's what those people are all doing. I, I don't think all of them, but probably quite a few. Some people may be just going to see the Niagara Falls, but many of them probably going to do gambling. So we could all be doing that today or indulging in various types of sensual pleasure, but here we are together, interested in the Buddha's teaching. And this man who came to ordain as a novice just think what a great thing it is for him. He'll have a week now to live with his own mind and cultivate mindfulness, hopefully. And there's another quality of this moment, and it, it sort of, if we can shift gears here, just talking about this moment as opposed to this life, we'll talk about this present moment, it's special on a different level. Because this moment is real. The most special thing about this moment is that unlike every other moment, it's here and now. And it has a categorically superior quality to it from all other moments. This moment we can experience. Uh, we can grasp this moment, this moment, every moment. When we're in the present moment, that one moment that arises and then it's gone. And it's no longer this moment anymore, it's that moment. And then there's this moment. But every time we're in this moment, we're in, con we're in contact with reality. And the Buddha compared this to grass that is connected with its roots, and so it receives the nourishment of the roots. But when you cut the grass, he said, when you cut the grass, it dries up in the sun. And he said, this is the same with someone who is cut off from the present moment. Such an important teaching, simple, incredibly simple teaching, but also incredibly important. And this this simile, simple simile, so important to understand and so apt because it's how you feel. When you're cut off from the present moment, living in the past, living in the future, you feel dried up. You feel empty. You feel unwell. And every moment when you engage with the present, using mindfulness, just a simple practice of reminding yourself this is pain, this is pleasure, this is seeing, this is thinking, this is feeling. Every moment that you do that, there's a connection and you're nourished by that moment, nourished by the simplicity of the, of the experience where the mind is no longer judging or reacting. It's just being. So that's the moment. 
think I'll give a short talk today and stop there because, as I said, we started late, so probably don't have as many questions today, but we should probably get going and answer people's questions. So just some thoughts, some of the things I talked about this morning about this moment, the special nature of this moment. So let's take this opportunity to be in the moment and to practice meditation together. Try and be mindful. If you don't have any questions, we'll just close our eyes and be mindful. And those people who do have questions can post them and then forget about them because then they can join us by closing their eyes and cultivating a relationship with the present moment. You have questions, so let's begin. While doing walking meditation, it is instructed to look after the sensations on the foot. Is it right that while noting thinking, we should look after the sensations in the brain? No, because thinking isn't in the brain. There is... What the brain does is it triggers a stimulus and the mind reacts to that stimulus. The brain gives a perception or a, a trigger and it, that triggers sanya, which is recognition. You recognize it like memories and so on. But the actual thought is nowhere. It's, it has no space. It's mental. If you feel sensations in the brain, that's physical. Brain is a physical thing. It's not mental. Right, the, the sensations in the foot is correct because walking is a physical thing, but thinking is not a physical thing. There's nothing directly to do with the brain. I've never faced depression before. I can have metta towards others, but I have a great amount of hatred towards myself and my situation. How can this hatred be abandoned? The, the best way really is not to concern yourself with metta. People talk about self-love, and a lot of Buddhists have sort of gotten on this bandwagon of self-love and love yourself and so on. And it, it's not a, that's not an unwholesome thing. I just don't think it's as effective as, like anything, accepting that the anger is there. Like self-hatred is different in a way. It's tied up very much with ego and expectations about yourself. It's it's still anger, and so metta is plausible as a as an antidote, but not in the same way as it, as your relationship with other people. It's never looked upon in in the texts as something that's really effective. What's most and uh, so I think it could be helpful. I'm not saying that it's not, but especially because it's not highly recommended in the texts except as like an example like before you go to practice metta with others you start with yourself and it says that's just as an example but it can never lead to great the texts even say it can never lead to great um concentration or or trance states or anything like that so 
better, and as always, better than any type of metta. Not that metta is not good, but better is always going to be mindfulness. So rather than looking at it as a problem that has to be abandoned, look at it as an experience that has to be understood, and the hatred is part of that experience. If you do that, that helps you abandon the hatred, because hatred is just a judging habit, and mindfulness is a non-judgmental habit. So as you change your habit, you start to adjust your reactions, your, your interactions with the things. It's not something that's easily gotten rid of, but that shouldn't be your focus. You shouldn't be obsessed with getting rid of things. That also has to do with ego, the belief or the perception that somehow you can get rid of things. That's just not a good attitude because it leads to ideas of controlling and, and fixing and this obsession with having to make things perfect, which which it, it it's there's greed there. There's uh, there's expectation, you know. Like you want when you think like that, then you're only satisfied when it goes away, and you're unsatisfied and frustrated, right? It makes you worse when it doesn't go away. If you change the way you look at it to just be okay, now there's anger, and when you think about the things that you've done, if you learn to just experience them, thinking. Uh, then the anger doesn't arise as well, so it breaks apart that habit. Just try and use mindfulness, and don't expect for it to be fixed where suddenly you don't have that, because that expectation is counterproductive. That's the whole point. It's not that you should feel like it's never going to work. You should be clear that it's going to work, but it's going to work because you change your attitude. You no longer uh, obsess over it fixing your problems. And because if you're no longer obsessing, that whole attitude is what solves the problem. How do you be in the moment when something pleasing and wonderful happens after many years? I've been lonely and I'm scared to let go, thinking, when will I get this feeling again? Well, when you're attached to feelings, that's the disadvantage of feelings. They are impermanent. That's absolutely a universal lesson that we must learn as human beings. I mean, it's at the core of the path to freedom from suffering. Really very simple things. That's one of the very simple realizations that is so hard to understand and appreciate that the problem is not that we don't get what we want. The problem is that getting what, our, what we want is never going to, never going to be reliable because of the impermanence, and so it's never going to satisfy us. I mean, and moreover, it it doesn't lead to any sense of of satisfaction because it's habit forming and we'll need more of it in the future. So you holding on to this happiness is only making you more addicted, uh, more reliant upon that happiness, and more susceptible to the suffering that eventually comes when you don't get what you want. So you should, at the very least, try to temper it with, you know, with mindfulness and with renunciation. Renunciation meaning... A sort of contentment, being able to to accept that things are impermanent, 
mindfulness really helps you do that as you see impermanence more you become more flexible more adaptable less dependent on specific experiences you should be able to separate pleasure pleasure and the the desire for the pleasure because there's nothing wrong with pleasure but if you can experience it mindfully and objectively then it doesn't become a, a hindrance to you it doesn't become a problem for you when when you can't get it or when you are afraid of losing it and so on we're devastated by this loss because of our desire our attachment to things that makes us in that makes us dependent the key is to become independent. Is it good to precede meditation sessions by visualizing loss of what you treasure in life as well as death? Isn't this right view or prajna, wisdom, the mindfulness of loss and death? No, I mean it's as you 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 can appreciate that's a useful reflection, but it's just a reflection. Those kind of reflections are good, but they're not a replacement. It's not that's not okay. Was well, so let me yes, it, it is good, and yes, it's related to right view. So so yeah, don't let me say anything bad about that. That's good. I was just going to say be clear that it's not a replacement for meditation, but I don't think you believe that. So. That sounds fine. I mean, these kind of reflections can be good. There's lots of reflections like, I'm going to die and death is a part of life. Um, that we're going to lose everything. This reflection that everything that we hold dear and even our own body is going to lie on the ground. Before long, this body is going to lie on the earth. With, with consciousness having abandoned it. So when the mind abandons the body, it will lie on the earth like a charred log, like a rotten piece of wood. That's what this body is going to end up being. Does it matter whether we sit on a cushion a blanket or on the bare floor? No, except that extreme pain is not that conducive to meditation, at least especially in the beginning. And also extreme pain can lead sometimes in some cases to injury, and you don't want that. So uh, you're best to make it reasonably, uh, reasonably, and I don't want to say comfortable because it's not quite right, but reasonably undistracting so you don't want excessive pain necessarily i mean there's nothing wrong with lots of pain but you probably only want a moderate amount of pain and i'm not saying you want it you're not trying to actively seek out pain but you want a good posture and you don't want to be avoiding the pain so if there is pain just think well is this pain because I'm sitting in a strange and awkward position, like a full lotus position, or is it just because my body is unflexible? So over time that will change, then you can just say, well, it's okay, the pain is okay. But don't go sitting trying to sit full lotus, for example. Usually that's not a good idea in this type of meditation, because usually that's just going to create lots of pain and potentially even cause injury. I'm not sure if lotus position would cause injury, but I wouldn't recommend it. 
So don't go looking for pain, but uh, don't go running away from it either. Incidentally, the lotus position is really good for sitting on the bare floor if you can do it because your ankle bones don't touch the hard floor when you sit full lotus. So it does have that great benefit. I told us to, we were talking about this once and I mentioned that as a reason it's almost like, you're saying the only pain, you're saying we should be concerned with the pain of the ankle bones. What about the pain of sitting full lotus? But so that would only be if the full lotus is not already excruciatingly painful. How can I deal with an overwhelming feeling of guilt? Could it be karma, a consequence of my careless behavior in my youth? Just be mindful of it. We're not concerned about what it was a result of. We're not concerned about what things are a result of. You, you're going to see cause and effect anyway. So any idea that you might have about cause and effect is not intellectual. It's what you see as you observe. But you only observe things. You don't try and observe relationships. The relationships are what you're going to see on a momentary basis. Anything else is just going to be intellectual, and that's inferior because it's just conception in your mind. It's not observation. It's not as powerful. It doesn't have the same impact as actually seeing over and over and over again until you it, it creates certainty in the mind because of seeing, right? It's somewhat similar to the scientific method where you actually have to observe your theories or one thing about, it's like if I tell you this is a cause of something in your youth, that's just a theory. But you actually seeing and observing what things are a cause of what, that's science. And so it, 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 it's, it's like that, but it's important actually for a different reason. Science uses that to say, oh, well, then we can trust it. But it's a bit different here because we're not, intellectually thinking, okay, I can trust this, it actually has a more profound impact on us when we experience things for ourselves. It's a totally categorically different thing to experience cause and effect. Anyway, that's not quite what you're asking. So just dealing with what you're asking, how do you deal with it? Try and be mindful. I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate, but I would recommend maybe starting there. If you're interested, you could do our at-home course. That might help. It's all free, so... Take advantage of it, free for a not unlimited time. Well, free for a limited time, because I'm going to die, and you're going to die. And who knows what else might happen in the meantime, so it's free for a limited time. Take advantage of this one-time offer. Is it better to not fast to eventually go through the stages of insight, or... And I note in the speed I prefer, and that will take me all the way. Okay, noting does not, it's not like notes per minute or something. There, there's, there's no correlation between a noting and progress on the path like that. So you get no benefit from noting faster. This isn't a machine. Noting is a tool when used skillfully, when applied at the right moment, it evokes the qualities that we're looking for. 
Noting is not the quality we're looking for. Noting is the tool that evokes the qualities of mind that we're looking for. And it won't evoke those just because you do it faster, right? You can't go quick, you can't evoke them quicker. <laughs> you evoke them because of the aptness of the noting. The noting is apt, it's at the right time. The only way you could note quicker is if you are experiencing things quicker, and our mind doesn't work like that. So you might find a little bit of a speed up. Whereas before you might have been sluggish and taking time in order to find the right noting, it speeds up as you become more efficient, but it should never speed up to the point where it becomes quick because your mind still has to give rise to the proper um, mind states, and that has a rhythm to it, or not a rhythm, but it has a length to it. Your noting should not be a rhythm either. It should always be just about now, what's happening now. So it's wrong if you're thinking that somehow noting quicker would give you more points, like each each noting gives you a point and you want to get the high score or you want to get enough points to get to the next level or something like that. It's not a game, not like that. It's an incredibly challenging and incredibly rewarding experience, but it's a, you have to understand it's real. And that might seem trite to say, but we have so little connection, such a tenuous connection with reality as human beings that it is meaningful to say that it is real and, and that that makes it special. And that makes it unsusceptible, un, uh, unsusceptible, right, to our whims, to our wishes, to our control. It's not a concept like a person or a place or a thing that we can control. It's real, and so it's very much out of our control, and it, it, it surprises us at every turn, and it should because it's teaching us something we don't already know. It's bringing us closer to something that we've never been very close to. It's helping us see things that we've never really been familiar with. And so it's going to surprise us and thwart us at every turn. If you haven't given up in, in your meditation practice, like really gotten to the point where you just give up and, and uh, admit defeat with the feeling sometimes that you're just a useless meditator, if you haven't gotten to that point where you just realize how useless you are, you just really can't. You haven't got to that point. I mean, I don't want to be categorical here, but you really have to get to that point to to really let go. So as long as you're thinking you're in control, you're doing well, your practice is good. I don't I don't want to be categorical because it's not exactly like this, but it it's usually like this. You have to realize how you're actually not in control. And usually that's a big blow to the ego, except for those people who don't have ego, but most likely you have ego, not you particularly, but you as in everybody. And so most likely everybody is going to get to this point where it's just a blow to the ego and you realize you really are terrible at this meditation thing. And that's that's the real way to go forward. And and what how that relates to your question is just you're not in control. You can't make these stages arise. These stages come because they destroy you. They destroy your sense of control. They destroy your sense of progress. They destroy your sense of skill and aptitude. They just destroy you. And that's true letting go. 
it's a part of the path. You'll be destroyed and destroyed and destroyed until there's nothing left to destroy. Are you saying that by noting without rational thinking that understanding and wisdom will come in time? Yes, wisdom and understanding have nothing to do with rational thinking. That's a mis mistake that we make because of our understanding of the words wisdom and understanding. Our conception of them is as in relation to rational thinking. Wisdom and understanding in Buddhism, understand this, listen carefully. Wisdom and understanding in Buddhism have to do with seeing clearly. It's like becoming familiar with reality. It's not about understanding something conceptually. It's about having understanding, like when someone relates their experience and you say, I understand. Why? Because you've been there. Why? Because I've been there. You can say to them, I've been there. I, un I understand what you're going through. Why? Because I've been there. That kind of thing. It's that kind of understanding. It's the wisdom of having experienced it. It's like the wisdom of old age. How we can say old people are wise. Is it because they've thought a lot? Absolutely not. It's because they've experienced a lot. So through meditation, it's like aging very quickly and, and much better than aging because it's much more pure and potentially much more powerful. How does one not get more attached to pleasure if they experience it regularly in samatha meditation? Well, samatha meditation is kind of special because the quality of the mind uh, removes you from sensuality. So the pleasure is not actually attached to, not directly. Now you can become attached to it because you like, when you come out of it, you have this liking for that state and wanting to go back into that state. And that sort of conceptual craving can lead to addiction. I don't think there's any argument to be made against that. But during the time that you're in Samatha meditation, it has that special quality of being pure because the mind is too focused to actually give rise to liking. But you're on to something. I mean, Samatha is not above craving. And so it is possible to, to some in some way, get addicted to it, attached to it. It's also possible to become egotistical about it. It's even possible to become egotistical about, egotistical about vipassana. Until you reach nibbana, until you free yourself from ego, it's still always possible to become attached and egotistical. So samatha is not enough to free you. but it won't make you more attached to pleasure. That's not likely. Whenever I try to stay away from things that distract me a lot, I have a fear of missing out, and the temptation increases and takes me away from my object of focus. Any tips on overcoming this feeling? Well, try, don't worry about overcoming the feeling. Try and note the feeling. That's a good reason to take yourself away from those things once in a while so you can actually observe and, and familiarize yourself with those feelings of desire and worry and fear and so on. So that's a big part of our observation in, in meditation, and it's a great cleansing. It's like withdrawal. Why do people go to rehab clinics to go through that withdrawal? to allow themselves the time for their minds to sober, 
to dry out, to what's the word, to detox. Because it's kind of toxic. What is the difference between breathing as in vipassana and breathing as in samatha? Both techniques look pretty similar to me. So breath is a bit slippery because there's an acknowledgement that it often leads to samatha, as in your mind gets focused on a concept, like the concept of the breath which leads to deeper and deeper conceptual experience until you're focused on a single reality, whatever that might be. Sometimes it's a light, they say. It could be different. It could maybe a feeling. I don't really know. But in Vipassana, we're focused on the four, uh, the four elements. And in breath, that's the ten generally the tension element, but there's also heat and cold as well. So this is why we use the stomach, not because it's categorically different, but because it's more coarse and more physical. Like the, the stomach, the abdomen is a part of the, the respiratory system, right? The clenching, the tension in the abdomen is, an, is one part of that system, but it's a part of the system that's much more concrete than some other parts. Like, for example, the feelings of the air going into your lungs or the feeling of it touching the nostrils. Those are also realities, but they're more subtle and they're more connected with concepts of breath moving, right? We don't experience moving. We experience sensations of heat and cold and tension and, and release. And by focusing on the abdomen, we're much more in that realm. So the difference is that breath is not actually a reality. The reality is the four, the four elements. So if you want to practice vipassana, focus on the four elements, like the, the tension in the stomach is a tension. It's a real physical experience. Don't focus on breath going in and out, because going in and out is not a real experience. You don't experience breath going into the body. You conceptualize that. When noting the thoughts, the thoughts I try to note stop because of the noting. Any tips? No, that's understandable because you're thinking something else. So we're not trying to uh, extend or there's no reason for extending. I mean, what, one thing it does to note is it breaks up that habit that causal chain, which is going to lead from one thought to another. And that's useful because that causal, that thought chain can very much lead you away from the present moment. So it's good to catch it like that. But once you've noted thinking, well, that's it, it's gone. Of course, you're just reminding yourself it's only thought. And well, that worked, didn't continue. The, your mind didn't think, oh, this is a thought I want to explore. Your mind instead recognized, yeah, that's just a thought. And then you see, oh, it's gone. And that's it. No tips, no problem. How can meditation help with depression? Hmm, that's a big one, no? 
Give this one, do this one justice. Depression is a challenge for people. It's a challenge because it's ingrained. Depression is like getting into a rut. Oh, you have a rut, right? We have, we talk about I'm being in a rut, but the word rut, of course, is comes from a dirt road or a muddy road, where your truck or your car digs itself into the rut. Have you ever been on a muddy road? And if the mud dries, oh boy, a muddy road that dries up with ruts in it. If you're in a small vehicle and there are big ruts, you can't even drive on the road anymore. But you get pulled into the ruts. So why they say I'm in a rut is because you can't get out of it. And why you can't get out of it is because it's habitual and you've developed this habit. And having developed the habit, it becomes stronger and stronger. So the first thing you have to acknowledge about things like depression is they're not going to go away overnight. Now, that would normally be discouraging, but with mindfulness, the attitude overcomes that because our attitude is not about trying to get rid of things. It's not concerned with when will it go away, when will I be free from this. It's not concerned with results. Mindfulness is something that happens in the present moment. And because you're always in the present moment, you can always be mindful. You don't have to think about what's going to happen in the future. And, and that change in perspective really changes everything because depression is, again, one of those things that's very much caught up in the past and the future and concepts. So how, do you, how does meditation help with it? Because it changes the habit. Not only does it start to work and erode the depressive habit, it allows you to experience depression without being overwhelmed or discouraged by it because depression is no longer in control. Depression is no longer uh, no longer controlling you, is no longer um, it's no longer hurting you. Depression is no longer in charge. Uh, and this is because you are seeing it as moments. You're experiencing the moments of depression without any motive or desire for it to go or anything like that. You're changing your attitude and your perspective so that moments of depression are just moments of depression. When you say to yourself, depressed, depressed, disliking, sad, and you think about the things that make you depressed and you say, you're, you're not only breaking the chain, but you're neutralizing it as well. Depression is no longer a boogeyman, it's just a moment of experience. That attitude makes you invulnerable. It makes you invulnerable to all kinds of mental illness because even when they arise and they do hurt you, they still hurt. They no longer have power over you because that hurt is just an experience. And every time you remind yourself of that experience, you free yourself from it. It can be disconcerting in the beginning because you think, well, first of all, it didn't make my depression stop because it comes back again, right? But also it's just, I don't know what to do next, right? I noted it, okay, depression went away, what, what, what do I do now? And then the depression comes back and you think, oh, 
well, that was useless. But the truth is, you freed yourself. For that moment, you freed yourself from depression. And then you said, what do I do now? You wasted it. <laughs> so what you should do then is be mindful of what's there. Be adapt, be flexible. When the depression goes, be mindful in that present moment. And if you can develop that skill, you can actually avoid so much of the depression. You can free yourself from the any arising of the depression in the first place. Are mindfulness and awareness one and the same? No. No, those are both English words. So first I'd caution about putting too much emphasis on English words, but those are clearly very two very different things. Now, I would say that you have a better and more clear awareness through mindfulness, but awareness is something that we have all the time. It's just the quality of aware, our awareness differs. And so we talk about having wise attention. So we might say clear awareness is the result of mindfulness. But mindfulness is about grasping experiences as they are, getting a good grasp on them so that you are, are not wavering from the experience or not extrapolating on the experience, not making more of the experience, not reacting to it, not being controlled by it, being affected by it, just really staring it down neutrally, objectively, without any wavering or reacting at all. Should we try to meditate as much as possible? You should try to use mindfulness as much as possible. Uh, it doesn't necessarily require you to do as much formal me formal meditation as possible. But it's good to have a balance between formal meditation and mindfulness in daily life. I mean, ultimately the answer to your question is yes. You should give up your job and your family and go live in a monastery or a meditation center or a cave and just practice meditation day and night. But... That's not really good advice for most people. So for most people, it's, well, you should try and be mindful and, and do as much formal meditation as you can comfortably. But outside of that, try and be mindful in daily life as well. And you should have a teacher. You should have some guidance because just doing lots of meditation on your own can lead you in the wrong direction without guidance. It's easy to get lost if you've never been there. Okay, we've come to the hour. There are seven more questions in the top tier. Do you have the time to answer? Yep. How do I deal with loneliness that stems from not having a romantic partner? I always wanted a partner, but don't have it, and that makes me feel lonely and sad. Well, I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate, but that might help. Loneliness doesn't stem from not having a romantic partner. 
I don't have a romantic partner and I'm not lonely. Loneliness stems from desire for having, for not being alone. You can feel lonely even when you're surrounded by people because you don't have what you want. Loneliness is caused by your own attachment. So try reading our booklet and you could do our at-home meditation course if you are interested and that might help. Would following the five precepts be the best antidote to guilt and shame for everybody? No, following the five precepts is insufficient, but necessary. If you know this about logic, there's necessary and sufficient conditions. So argumentation, if you want a good argument, five precepts are a necessary condition, but they're not sufficient. So think of them that way. Is meditation on its own useless if we don't practice precepts and ethics? No, because going against what I just said, the precepts themselves are not actually ethics, right? So when I say the five precepts are necessary, what it means is that if you're breaking them and if you're inclined to break them, you don't really have ethics. You've got a glaring uh, lack of ethics. But ethics itself is very much a part of meditation practice. And during the time that you're meditating, you're generally very ethical. Now, if you come to meditation as an evil, corrupt, unethical person, you're going to see how important ethics are, or maybe you won't because you're too distracted, but anyone who watches you could certainly see how important ethics are because you would be very useless at the meditation, as you say. So you will be very hard-pressed to meditate if you are unethical and don't have any, you don't keep proper precepts. Like if your precepts are not the important ones, it's not about practicing precepts because you can have a precept to only wear a bark dress or sleep more with some of the things from this morning in our study group, sleeping on a bed of nails. Those are precepts, but they're not really helpful. So yeah, it's mostly just about ethics. But as a meditator, you gain ethics. If you can push through, your, your ethics will improve through meditation. And that's not just relating to the five precepts. You'll just be a kinder, gentler, more peaceful, humble, uh, un harm harmless uh, harmless individual how does one deal with the rawness of one's emotions as one meditates as i open up and begin to avoid distractions in my life i see more of others suffering and get so angry at them being in pain well, i guess i'd caution a little bit about categorizing your emotions as raw because it's kind of a, a value judgment. A little bit, but it's not a big deal. But I guess I just want to ignore that part to some extent and just maybe maybe realign it more with the intensity of your emotions. Like they can be very intense. Raw maybe because they're real, but well, everything's real. And don't be distracted by that fact. Everything's going to feel a little bit raw when you start. But it's still just anger. So don't get distracted by the quality of it. When you're angry, just try and note the anger. The anger 
can take on a narrative like you're giving it kind of a narrative here you're you're angry because and and that's not a part of it you're angry ang you're angry because you're angry you're angry because you have the ignorance about anger being harmful to you and if you focus on the anger and see the anger as it is that ignorance will go away and you'll never get angry again that's basically it so it has nothing directly to do with seeing others suffering i mean you you probably know that but be clear on about that in your mind that obviously some people see other people suffering and don't get angry because the anger doesn't help and because they've seen that i mean some people just don't get angry because they're apathetic and that's of course worse i suppose but an enlightened person doesn't get angry when they see other people suffering so you're still in delusion about the nature of anger and that's okay that's why we're practicing to clear up that delusion and that ignorance Should I note paranoia or feeling uneasy in public situations such as awkwardness, social anxiety? Absolutely, yes. I mean, paranoia maybe, but you can just say afraid. Paranoia is a bit of a narrative. It's a bit conceptual. When I say narrative, I mean adding things to it, making more out of it than it actually is, making a story about it. Right, so paranoia means afraid, but we'd say afraid excessively, and that's not important. It's fear, it's fear, it's not excessive, it's just fear. So just say afraid, afraid. If you feel uneasy, yes, just say uneasy. Worried, anxious, absolutely, good, excellent ones. Also note the physical sensations associated with anxiety and fear because they're often quite acute, and they should be differentiated from the anxiety. It's very helpful to do that. They might last after the anxiety is gone and you mistake them for anxiety, which can be a problem. Don't do that. They're not anxiety. They're just physical. Thoughts that lead to anxiety, note them, etc., etc. Is it possible to tackle addiction through meditation? If so, how? Well, addiction is, again, it's a rut. It's, a, it's an ingrained habit but there's nothing special about it. So again, the two things still apply. Uh, one, you'll slowly break it down by being mindful, and two, you won't be disturbed by it when it's still there, when you're mindful. I mean, it's not easy. I don't mean to make this sound like an easy thing, but it's pretty simple, and it's purposeful. I mean, it, it's intrinsically simple. I mean, it, on purpose, because we're trying to simplify our relationship to things. Take out the excessive... the Extrend the ex. Uh, my English is no good. Superfluous, maybe, is the word I was looking for. Take out the stuff that's not necessary, not a part of the actual experience. But, um, Really, if you're interested, you could read our booklet on how to meditate, maybe take the at-home course if you haven't done that. You should start to see. I mean, addiction's not going to just go away because you do some meditation, but it'll give you a better perspective and point you in the right direction. You have said you should not expect any results from the practice. How do I know I am practicing correctly? By the quality of your mind the quality of your mind state, that's what tells you. That's much more reliable than results. 
results are kind of a long-term thing that you can come to appreciate, but you should never rely upon them. I had a, lo a long-term meditator who's really done wonders for their own practice and recently came to me and was quite discouraged because they felt like all these old things were coming back. You can never really predict how complicated and how deep the defilements are going to be, and it's very easy to overestimate your progress. That's much. That's a very common problem that leads to discouragement because we're we're far more complicated than we realize. So results are hard, if not impossible, to really not impossible. I mean, you get a general sense that you're improving, but. The problem is we we like to improve, and so we become greedy and attached to it, and egotistical even about it, feeling like we've improved and proud of ourselves, and so on. All of that exacerbates this overestimation. It's very very not dangerous. You're not going to die from it or something, but it's it's dangerous in the sense that it leads to complacency and it leads to distraction, and it leads to discouragement when you're thwarted, when you feel like gee, I was totally wrong. This meditation's useless. It didn't bring me what I thought it brought me. I thought this was going to be permanent, and here I'm back at square one. And you're not back at square one. It's That's an over-exaggeration over of the reality, but it's easy to feel like that sometimes. So don't don't get caught up in the trap of results. And that might sound dangerous because then you think, well, I could be saying that in my, this whole, practice could be completely useless and i'm just brainwashing you into ignoring the fact that it's doing nothing but that's absolutely not true because the reality an important principle you have to appreciate is that the quality of our minds here and now does affect our future we've seen this that's why we're here because we're addicted because we're angry because we're anxious and afraid and worried and confused because of all these things that we've developed based on the qualities of our mind. They didn't come out of nowhere. They're mindfulness as well is not magic, and it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of what? The, the results come out of these moments of clarity. So when you see those moments as how clear and pure they are, you never have to worry about results. Don't get fall into that trap of convincing yourself that you, you don't know whether this is doing anything. We convince ourselves into doubting. How could you doubt that? The mind is so pure in that moment. Don't forget that. Don't lose track. Don't lose sight of what's really important, and it's the quality of your mind in the moment. Because you'll see, there's there, there, you will have no reason to doubt. No, no, your mind can find no standing for doubt because the moment is and you will see it as being pure. That's the end of the prepared questions for T1. Okay, wonderful. Good session. Thank you all. Thank you all for your support and your continued interest in the Buddhist teaching. Thank you, Chris, and I don't know who else is here. Who's our Jim is here. Jim is here. Thank you, Jim, as well. Thank you all for your your consideration and your good intentions 
and keeping this a wholesome and productive and beneficial session for all involved. I wish you all peace and happiness and freedom from suffering. Have a good week. Sadhu. Sadhu.